appreciate y'all making the effort to be here today. We had a nasty weather week. It was pretty at times, but hard to get out in and travel around in. It's still a little bit sloppy out there. And I understand it's supposed to rain all day, so I appreciate you guys making the effort. There's, of course, a lot of sickness out there, too, as we know, as we're experiencing within our body and, again, the community at large. My understanding is that they're reporting more positive cases than, than any other surge in the past. So, so there's a lot of it out there, a lot to pray about, a lot, to, a lot of people to minister to. Um, I, uh, I, had, I actually had prepared this lesson, I mean this lesson, the sermon. <laughs> I mean, I'm in teacher mode, sorry. <laughs> this sermon, it's a little bit like a lesson, hopefully. It won't sound like it. <laughs> Um, um, for last week, although I didn't have it very well organized because it was, and so I've, I've worked on it a little bit this week uh, as it became more and more evident that Larry wasn't going to be able to bounce back and come back. So big as my feet are, they're pretty big. They don't fill the shoes that should be standing here today. Um, so what I was going to talk about is... Um, kind of I think what I think is a change in the culture and of course you all we all sense that but specifically what I was wanting to address is the the change in the culture of um, of reaching out to the world for the church I mean how how, how I think that that may need to change um, subtly or profoundly I'll let you kind of decide but but I'll present these ideas in I'd like to, you know, get feedback from you, maybe not during the service, but after the service or other times to see what you have to think about this. But I don't want to, I want to go ahead at the front end, let you know that a lot of the things that I'm going to be presenting, a lot of the ideas are come, are coming from a book that I recently read, one that was uh, um, <clears throat> uh, recommended to me by Chris Spencer. Uh, Chris had uh, talked it up to me. And then... Uh, a couple of weeks later, one of my favorite podcast people that I listen to also endorsed the book, and I said, "Well, that's two strong endorsements there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this book." So you can go ahead and put that up, William. This this is the book. It's called Person of Interest. It's by um, a cold case homicide detective that is now uh, an apologist um, and. It's a very, it's a fascinating book. I'm not going to try to tell you about that uh, uh, right now, other than tell you it's worth reading. It's easy. It's easy reading. It's not hard to follow, uh, and it will, it'll, it'll grasp your attention and, and, and take you right to the end. I think. Um, but I will occasionally quote, and I don't want to be accused of plagiarism if I don't happen to say that it's from. If I'm quoting something other than scripture, that's where it's coming from. So, <laughs> all right. So, for the past couple of centuries, the most common reasons given for reject, uh, rejecting Christianity have been philosophical or intellectual reasons. That's been where the battle has been. Battle lines have been drawn. Now, at least that's where that's what people say. You know, that's where that's the that's what they can use and feel. Um, uh, that they're not judging themselves in a way. You know, a lot of times we know, of course, that it's 
it's a, a personal thing. You don't want to give up something in your life. That's probably the real reason. But that's that's not where that's not where the arguments are. You know, people come forward and they'll give you an intellectual argument. And they'll say things like this. I've got to, you can't trust the Bible. The New Testament was written decades or centuries after the events that it supposedly depicts. That's been an often raised charge. Or the Bible has been changed by the men in the church throughout the ages. It's been corrupted from its original message. You can't trust that it's, that it's been the same. Or you can only trust, this is from the philosopher David Hume, you can only trust what can be proven empirically or scientifically, basically. They'll tell you that. Uh, or an argument like uh, only the uneducated or unintelligent people believe in God. I had a, I had a, a, a high school teacher. I won't, I won't even say what subject was. Uh, if he happens to be watching, I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> um, but he, he brought up to it, thought it was important for him to bring up to his class in, in high school that, that the higher the education, the less the belief in God. And so him, that was proof that only ignorant people believe in you know, such myths and fairy tales. Um, or they might say that evolution has removed the need for God. We don't need God to explain anything. Evolution explains it all. So those are the arguments that have been presented. I say it's for the last couple, couple of centuries. That's kind of where, been, where the battle line has been. And it took Christians a while to kind of catch up with that. Uh, and apologetics has been pretty good, I would say, in answering those questions for the past 100 years. It took about 100 years for the church to catch up. And it may be that those types of arguments kind of start at the top in the places of higher learning, you know, or uh, the intelligentsia. You know, those ideas will catch hold and they'll talk. And then it gets implemented in, in, in those institutions of higher learning, and it trickles down slowly into the, into the public, you see. And so maybe for the first century, Christ, Christians thought, well, we've got the majority. We don't have to argue this. We can, we can just depend upon our numbers and the kind of the, the culture itself pretty much agrees with us. But that started changing, and so Christians started seeing a, a need to answer those questions, you know, a, a need to follow the edict from, I think it's, Second Peter three fifteen or First Peter three fifteen, but be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So it, 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 um, so they started answering those questions, and 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 they've done a good job, I think. I mean, archaeologic, archaeologic, and literary evidence have now dated all the New Testament writings to within within decades, within a few decades of the events that they depict. Now that's something that. We didn't know until more and more evidence comes out. You know the way you, the way they inspect these writings, and you can date, and you can look at not only the the books of the Bible themselves, but the letters written by the early church fathers, and see how they were quoting them. And most of the New Testament actually can be recreated from the requotes from the early church fathers. And so, with that, and with fragments of scripture that have been found, we now know that scripture 
dates to within the lifetime of those people who actually eyewitnessed those events. And what does that mean? Well, that means that if they were false accounts, the people who knew better would have stepped up. Because these, people, these were people who were willing to die to spread this good news, you see. And so they would not have allowed a lie to be spread. Because, like I said, this was occurring, was being written down and circulated during their lifetimes. Older and older fragments, as I was mentioned, demonstrate the reliability of our current copies of Scripture. As we found older and older pieces and compared them to the ones that we have now, the only changes appear to be either accidental or misspellings or sometimes maybe a marginal note got included into the, into the retranscribing of it, none of which alters the message of the Scripture. Yeah, there are little changes here and there. Nothing to significantly change the message. And, and we can rely on that. Um, can you... Here, <laughs> as, as to the, the Hume statement, you can only trust what can be proven empirically or scientifically. Can that statement be proven empirically or scientifically? It cannot. So it's a self-defeating claim. You know, that's... There are some things, you know, the science works that way, that, but there are other things that do not depend upon that type of proof. It's a different type of proof, so you can't, you can't depend upon that. You can't rest on that. Uh, and, and there have been some good Christian philosophers that have done a good job of pointing out, pointing out the foolishness of that. Um, and the whole thing about only unintelligent, uneducated people believe in God. All you have to do is make a who's who of smart people in the past. <laughs> uh, since, uh, you know, since Christianity has come, you've got intellectual giants such as Augustine, Aquinas, Francis Bacon, who is credited with actually coming up with the scientific method. Uh, Galileo, Michelangelo, Kepler, Newton, Pascal, Dante, that's a short list. There's, I could go on and on and on. And all, all these are not only believers in God, but, but professing Christians. They, 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 it, was, it was part of who they were. You may be faced with, yeah, but those are pre-enlightenment. That's before the age of reason came. Well, okay. Then I'll add to that list Michael Faraday, Louis Pasteur, Gregor Mendel, the one who found genetics. Uh, Arthur Eddington, a British as, um, astronomer uh, who won the uh, Templeton Prize. Um, George Washington Carver. G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, John Polkinghorne, a particle physicist uh, from Cambridge. We just recently lost him last year. Um, so, no, that doesn't hold water. Only, only stupid people believe in God. That's, uh, you, you can't, you can't. So you can't, uh, with a straight face, make that argument. All right, so as far as evolution goes, evolution has been a useful theory in finding out some things. But evolution as a purely materialistic, chance-based theory, although it's elegant in its simplicity, it falls far short of having the explanatory power that is ascribed to it. 
it fails to answer the biggest questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? How did life begin? Where does information come from? Information has to have a medium to be held. It has to have a transmitter to send it. It has to have a receiver to interpret it and you know, enact on, enact on it. Where, where did information come from? What is consciousness? The smartest people in the world have trouble even explaining what consciousness is. How did it come to be? So evolution, while useful, um, it, it fails to answer those. And, and, and that is, you know, even as Darwin presented it, it wasn't really intended to answer those kinds of questions. It's just been uh, in an, almost a desperate effort to, you know, a desperate effort to uh, uh, to eliminate the need for a God. Then scientists, some scientists. Atheists have held on to that as maybe an explanation for everything, but it doesn't. In fact, many of the most significant scientific discoveries of the past century are more in line with a theistic worldview than with a materialistic one. Um, The idea that the world had a definite beginning, that was only established, really, scientifically, about 100 years ago. Before that, it was, you know, scientifically, well, maybe it had a beginning, maybe it just always has existed. But we now know, uh, and all, many, many ty- different types of tests have confirmed that, that there was a definite beginning. In fact, time itself has a definite beginning. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the fine-tuning of the universe, how everything just seems to work. You know, the, the major forces, if they were just the teeniest fraction of a percent of an increment off of what they are. And there's... We, we see no reason that they are what they are other than they need to be what they are for the world to hold together, basically. There would be nothing, you know, if, 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 everything, if everything wasn't tuned just right. And then, of course, the evidence of design, especially in living systems. These are all things that point to a designer, point to a God, point to a beginning, and just as Scripture tells us. Now, of course, it takes a regenerative work of the Holy Spirit to become a child of God. No one is argued into the kingdom of God. But Christian apologetics, up to this point, has focused on removing, removing those barriers, the intellectual, psycho, um, uh, uh, phys- uh, phil- philosophical, thank you, philosophical barriers and the intellectual barriers. Just by getting those out of the way, then we can have the conversation, you see. And so I think, I think apologetics has done a good job with that, but something that seems to have changed lately is that the battle lines often aren't on the intellectual level or the philosophical level. They seem to be more on an emotional level. Many people are not interested, not interested in knowing if Christianity is true because they are already convinced that it's evil. Since the advent of Christianity, this is, this is what will be presented sometimes. Since Christianity came to the West with Western civilization, these evils have been inflicted on the world. Imperialism, wars, 
religious oppression, slavery, racism, oppression of women, exploitation of the poor. It's not an exhaustive list, but those are the ones that usually come out first. So, an initial reaction is like, oh, wow, you know, those things have gone on in Western civilization. That's, that's true. Since Christianity has been the dominant cultural force in civilization, those things have, also, have gone on. That's true. But let's look at these accusations. What was the ancient world like when Christ entered it? What actually, came, what actually happened when Christ came into the world and he formed a following, which became what we know as Christianity? And why did Jesus come when he did? What was the world like, B.C.? All right. I, uh, <laughs> I had uh, a map that uh, I was hoping we could link to an Internet page and show it up here on the screen, but unfortunately... The link doesn't work. I didn't know that until I got here. But I'm sure you can see this just fine. <laughs> this is an interesting map. Uh, and it's called a histograph or a histomap. And what it does, you can see these colored columns that get wider and narrower as they, as they flow down. And what each one of these represents is a culture or a civilization. And it starts about 2,000 years before Christ came. And it's roughly west to east uh, about, uh, for the known world. So over here in the west, you have the Mediterranean, the Aegean civilization. And then uh, you've got the Egyptians. You can see from the very beginning, it's very wide, kind of a dominant culture. And then on across, you've got the Sumerians and uh, on over to the Chinese. Okay, so there's, there's these cultures. And, so, and what this does is as it flows down through the years, the width of the column shows the power, the relative power of that civilization, how much area they have, how many people are under their control, that kind of thing. And so that's a very ambitious thing to do. This one actually was, was formulated in the 1930s, so probably some of this has changed. You know, we probably know some things that might make this change, but generally, you get an idea. You can see how civilizations prosper for a while, and then they dwindle. Sometimes they disappear altogether or get absorbed into another one. And that's how this kind of shows that. And it's kind of interesting. I'll pull this up just in a minute to show you something in particular. But the ancient world had seen the rise and fall of a number of kind of dominating, uh, dominating empires, um, starting with the Sumerian and then the Akkadian, which kind of took over the Sumerian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, which lasted a good long time, the Assyrians, which Don mentioned uh, from Scripture uh, a little earlier, um, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. So we had a series of... Sometimes they just they get big, they dominate for a while, and then they shrink, and another one kind of gets big and sort of takes over what they had, or sometimes the other one actually conquers them and absorbs them into theirs. Each, each, each uh, empire rises to power by invading and conquering by force their neighboring tribes or their city-states or villages or kingdoms or other whole empires sometimes. They would then humiliate the leaders of the conquered empire. Sometimes they would you know, parade them publicly 
or have a public display of either executing them or punishing them or maiming them, taking off their thumbs or their big toes or something like that, something to demonstrate the superiority of the conqueror over the conquered, you see. They plundered their wealth, they exploited their resources, and then they would either assimilate or enslave their people. Assimilation means assuming a new identity. If, you, if your empire or your kingdom or your village or your city has been conquered by a, a, a conquering empire, and they are offering you assimilation, which is better than slavery, I suppose, uh, better than being killed, I suppose, then very often you have to take a new identity. You would have to swear fealty to the new conqueror, to the leader. Uh, you would have to use their language, sometimes taking a new name, in fact. Uh, we, hear, we saw that in Scripture, too, where the Israelites that were taken off to Babylon had to, had to assume new names in the new language. You had to assume the customs and the religious traditions and worship the gods of the conquering empire. Why would you hate, hold on to your old god because you were defeated? You know, obviously your god is weaker than the god of the conquering empire, you see. So you had to, you had to worship the god that's sustaining the empire. Of course, enslavement meant becoming the property of another person. Living or dying, or sometimes maybe a fate worse than dying, at the pleasure and for the benefit of your owner. In the Roman Empire, even upper, even, even upper class women couldn't own property or control their own finances. They couldn't vote. They couldn't hold office. If a woman had an inheritance from her family, it immediately went to, the, to her husband. You see, so they couldn't even, they weren't really the ownership of wealth or property other than whatever their husbands let them, let them have. Of course, lower class women were in a worse state. They were either servants, slaves, or prostitutes. That was the condition of women in the, in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, estimates vary from 30 to 40% of the population were slaves. So the point, I guess, here is that all the evils that have been ascribed to Western civilization, to Christianity, they were there before. They're part of the human condition. They're part of just being fallen man. And when those evils continue in Christianity, that's where man is acting out of his own, the evilness in his own heart. And so we see, we see those things continuing. But so so that, that brings us to ask then some other questions. <laughs> More important questions, really. Why did Christ come during the Roman Empire? And what changed since Christ came? I mean, what is unique, for instance, to the Christian world, the post-Christ world? post-advent of Christ's world. Well, Scripture tells us that the timing of the coming of the Christ was not accidental. I read this last week, but it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But the fullness of time had to come. Now, 
I'm not exactly sure. I'm starting to get an inkling, I think, why God does things the way he does. It seems, not seems, he's proven that he prefers to use us to accomplish his goals in the world. And that's an interesting thing that he, that he does that. He, he allows us to, so he, so again, back to why, why, why the Roman Empire? Uh, no, there's another slide that we don't have a link to. I had a, I had a, I had a map of the Roman roads. The Romans developed a road system that was amazing. They did almost 50,000 miles of these paved roads. They used heavy stones. It was a masterful feat of engineering. They, they used these large flat stones and they prepared the beds such that they were so stable that, that segments of many of them still exist today. 2,000 years later, we can't even keep a road in good condition, you know, through a snow, through a couple of rainstorms or something. It's, but these Roman roads, many of them are still here. So, um, so we, for the first time in all of the history of man, the ability to travel and to carry messages like good news had, had, had finally come about with this Roman. Um, back on this, if I got the, you're upside down. Back on this one, do you see, do you see any area where it looks like one particular civilization dominates power-wise and area-wise and people-wise more than any other do the whole thing? Right there in the middle. You see that big pink blob right there? That's the Roman Empire. So it was, it was the largest and greatest relative to where the people were empire of all time. And they created the longest peace because all these wars... They were going on all along, but for a period of time, where Rome ruled, they kept a relative peace. So that means not only do you have roads to travel on, it was pretty safe to travel because those roads were guarded by the Roman military, you see, and they were kept safe. This is a quote from the book. The Roman Empire had unified much of the known world had adopted a popular language. The, the popular language was actually Greek. Greek had spread over most of the uh, near, near East and the uh, western par- or eastern part of, of Europe as the main language spoken. In Rome, that was the language that they used when they were out away from, you know, Rome, away from Italy. Uh, but then, of course, Latin was the official language of the empire. Uh, which then became more, more and more the official language uh, used by more and more of the people. But they had unified the known world, adopted a popular language, provided a shared alphabet. See, keeping a language and the ability to convey messages in written form uh, depends upon having an alphabet that everybody can use and understand. And so Rome had used the Phoenician alphabet they had adopted that alphabet and used it to, uh, to formulate Latin, basically. Um, of course, and then the, the, the Greeks, of course, had their own Greek alphabet. They constructed roads. They developed the world's, world's best postal service. 
Did you know that? Romans had a postal service. And now they had roads that they could travel, that, that messages. Now, it was mainly for official duties, you know, official empire things. And so for Christians to smuggle messages along there, it, did had, it had to be smuggled in. But the ability to get messages long distances was for the first time there. Um, they embraced just enough religious tolerance, and in Wallace's words, to detonate an explosion. And so, this is the time that, that Christ. This is the time that Christ chose to come was during the Roman Empire because now his message could go out. Also, in line with the. Um, fullness of time. You've got the prediction of the Hebrew prophets. Jesus would be a Jew. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would be born after the second temple was rebuilt, but before the temple was destroyed. Uh, there was a prediction as far as how many years from the time that the, the order went out to rebuild that Jesus would come. In fact, that was followed so well that people really were anticipating a Messiah the time that Jesus came because they read those scriptures and, and, and understood them to mean something like this. And so there were a lot of false messiahs, false Christs coming uh, around that time. Of course, they, being false, they rose and fell. Also, in the book of Daniel, it was said that he would follow a succession of empires. In fact, that is the the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, and then Daniel interpreted for him, and and those the different parts of the statue represents the different empires that were going to come and fall, and the last one, of course, being the Roman Empire, which were the legs and feet. Um, so all of that brought shows that the the fullness of time had come during the Roman Empire. Now. Now we want to look see what has happened since Christ came. Well, to start with, he was born in a little nowhere town in a backwater part of what was then the Roman Empire that had very little influence. He wasn't even accepted by the religious leaders in his hometown. And so he had a very small following to start. And so it was a very humble beginnings, if you will. And it grew from that to, at the time of his um, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then, the, of course, the day of Pentecost, there was an explosion. And since that time, the church has grown consistently throughout the ages. There have been more Christians than any other religious uh, than any other people following or adhering to any religious faith in, in any, you know, throughout history. And it has continued to grow throughout history. Um, but here are some of the other things that were the fallout of, of Christ coming. And these things, that, you know, a lot of them I hadn't thought about before I read this book. A lot of for instance, this, he, before he became a cold case detective, he was an architect and an artist. And so he's one of these you know, kind of polymath kind of guys, a lot of talent, sort of like Chris. That's the reason Chris liked the book, I guess, and 
So, um, so one of the things that he, he points out is that a lot of architecture has been done, has been developed um, to the glory of God. Uh, I, William, I think the Notre Dame, for instance, well, sideways, but uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, there we go. One of the, those of you who know something about a lot more than I know about architecture will recognize the flying buttresses. That's these things on the outside that kind of look like they're holding the wall up. They look like they're holding the wall up because they're holding the wall up. And the reason they do that is, is, is twofold. One, that allows for greater expanse. You can get a bigger dome or bigger roof over that. And it also, the weight of the roof doesn't push the wall over. And by, doing, by making these props on the outside, the actual wall has space where you can put glass in. You see, so you, it, it permitted windows instead of a big, heavy, solid wall to hold up the roof. You can do a lighter weight wall with windows and then use these buttresses on the outside to, to hold it up. Why, why, why did they do that? Because it helps the worshiper inside to experience the coming of light, physical light that comes in as they're, being, <clears throat> as they're being exposed to the spiritual light of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Um, that's just one example. And so you've got these big domes and these big steeples and, of course, all the beautiful stained glass and stuff that goes along with that. Now, yeah, man gets in there. And so sometimes it was pride that kind of motivated some of these buildings. And sometimes it was... Um, Probably greed. You know, money was made. I'm sure that happens because men were involved. But as someone said this morning, God uses the ugly things. Well, it was, yeah, Yvette. God uses the ugly things sometimes to weave it into a tapestry. That's a beautiful thing. So, so that which you intended for evil... <laughs> God intends for good. And so throughout history, if you ever get a chance to walk into a cathedral, especially one of these majestic cathedrals of Europe, it's breathtaking. It can be a religious experience. <laughs> and that's how, uh, that's how I think it's intended to be. Um, moving on from architecture, um, Music. Okay, so music has gone from largely due to Christian artists, Christian musical artists. Here's some changes. Now, you, you guys who are musicians, a lot of you guys sitting out here right now know more about this than I do. So, but music has changed from the music itself, the, the, the tune, from pure memorization to music notation. It was Christians that started that. Um, from monophony, all one sound, to harmonization. That was developed as worship music to start. Uh, from a cappella to instrumentation, from modal systems to major and minor scales. Somebody who knows more about it would have to explain that to you than I do. Uh, went from being a sacred 
or exclusive right of the people who are wealthy, they, they, would, they could have music, to a common experience. The commoner now could, could uh, access music. It went from a rigid structure to boundless creativity. And this is all, this is all come since, since the coming of Christ. More art has been made, and the greatest art, art, artists inspired. There's another picture there. I have just, this is just the Sistine Chapel, which, again, it's on its side. But um, This was Michelangelo's, you know, one of his great works. But and art's an interesting thing. You, you can, you, the argument can be made that during the Middle Ages, art kind of went backwards. You know, as Christianity came in, the art history of the, the art of that time was not as realistic and didn't have some of the quality that some of the Golden Age Greek art and Roman art had. Um, <clears throat> but it did make God and Christ and heaven central. And so as time went on and those techniques were recaptured, then the centrality of the gospel and of, of sacred art remained while art flourished, let's say, during the Renaissance. And so, that, this, of course, this is a Renaissance art piece here. And again, if you ever get a chance to go with Rob to, to Italy and, and let him show you around, that's, that's certainly a, worth, a trip worth taking. Um, science has advanced. In fact, science as we know it was was a result of, I mentioned Francis Bacon, who kind of developed the scientific method. But the whole idea that the world could be understood is a Christian idea, or at least a theistic idea. It's, 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 it stems from the idea that there is a God who is reasonable and understands and made things to be orderly, and that he created us in his image so that we also could understand it. And so these early scientists, that I, the list that I mentioned earlier, they performed science to the glory of God. They saw that as a form of worship, not as some battle between the the book of nature versus the book of revelation, you know, book of scripture. It's not that. They, they, their nature and scripture are from the same God and they have to inter, intermesh, they have to interlock, they have to agree. Sometimes understanding how they agree is the challenge. Um, public hospitals were developed, you know, before Christianity came. There was a form of medicine. They had medicine, and you had practitioners of medicine, those priests that worshipped Esculapius, for instance. They were practitioners of the healing arts. And people that could afford it would go to a temple of Esculapius and pay the priests to do whatever it is they did in hope that they would get healed. And they, some of the things that they developed were you know, medically proper. Some were not. But that's the way you know you, you, you learn as you go, but it was pretty much just the wealthy or those who could, who would have somebody to sponsor them. Again, that could get medicine, and you went to you went to them and sought them out. Whereas medicine under Christianity became public, publicly accessible, 
It was taken to the public, in fact. Um, in fact, one of the one of the things that was commonly done during the Roman Empire was death by exposure of of infants. If an infant had a had a birth defect, or sometimes just if it was a girl and you didn't want a girl, or for whatever reason, it was fairly common practice and not really judged that harshly if you just expose them to the elements and let nature take its course. The early Christians would find those abandoned babies and take them in and raise them. <clears throat> and so that was, you know, that offering of care, medical sustenance, whatever, to those who needed it and couldn't get it, that was uniquely Christian. Slavery has existed throughout all time from the beginning of human civilization. Slavery just was the way things were. If you were a slave, well, that's tough, but, you know, maybe you'll be fortunate enough to be owned by someone who's relatively humane, you know. Or some systems had a way of getting out of, working your way out of slavery or whatever, but slavery just was until Christianity came. Now, pretty much in the world, the influence of Christianity has, has removed slavery from the world. It had removed it more or less from the Roman Empire about the time the Roman Empire fell. And when the Roman Empire fell and the barbarians came in, <laughs> uh, then pretty much slavery went away. And it stayed away until about the 7th century when it was reintroduced by Muslims slave traders. Now, the Christians participated and brought it back for a while. And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a mark on the name of Christianity. But it didn't start with Christianity. It was, it was here. It was, has been eliminated pretty much by Christianity. Women and children are no longer considered property. Democracy has been extended to include all people. Democracy was not invented by Western civilization, but it was extended to all people by Western civilization. Everybody was equal, but some people were more equal than others. You know, uh, It was pretty much just landholders very often in the early forms of democracy or people who hold this, held station that would get to vote. But now... We see, as Christians, we see the value of each individual person. And each individual person should have some say in their destiny. And so that, that idea of being extended to everyone and value, valuing everyone equally, regardless of their wealth or their station or their talents even, that inherently they all have the same dignity, that has been a uniquely Christian idea that has spread around. Education has flourished under Christianity. The alphabets, actually, uh, Ufalus, whose name I just was introduced to recently, and I'm probably saying it wrong, developed a Gothic alphabet so that he could write the Gospels in 
their language. They didn't have an alphabet. They just had a spoken language. So he created an alphabet for them just so he could spread the gospel, take the gospel to them. Similar to St. Saint, Saint Cyril. Uh, the Cyrillic alphabet, you've probably seen it. You know, Russian and the Eastern European, they have some characters that look kind of funny to us. That was the Cyrillic al- alphabet. Cyril developed that, uh, again, to spread the gospel. If you've ever attended a university or college, you can thank Jesus and his followers for that opportunity. The university system, the whole idea of colleges and universities was an outgrowth of the early, I know I'll get this word wrong, Uh, I'm going to have to look it up, catechetical (laughs) training centers, which started at the end of, uh, in the middle of the second century. Justin Martyr, who was like second or third, his, his, his mentor's mentor was the Apostle John, if I remember right. Uh, Justin Martyr established schools in Rome and Ephesus, and then later on, St. Pantaneus, the philosopher, established a similar school in Alexandria, e- e- Egypt. And these were, first of all, training in the gospel, training in church matters, but then they started adding to that. They added mathematics, and they added philosophy, and then they added healing arts. And, and those are, that's what has developed into the university system, the educational system, the higher education system that we have today. And, of course, publishing as we know it was invented by Christians. Uh, the very first Bible mass produced on the Gutenberg Press was the first book was the Bible. And, and because of that, the Word of God had, can be spread in, in written form, you know, everywhere. Uh, translators have been working for, for centuries now in translating the gospel into the language of the people who are receiving it so that they can understand it. And more books have been written about Jesus than any other person in history. More buildings have been built to the honor of Christ than any other person in history. So perhaps the biggest change that has occurred in the world, though all those are impressive, but, and I've alluded to this, but maybe the biggest change are, are, are in morality, you know, in those moral codes, the things that we judge things by. In fact, the moral values by which the accusers of Christianity judge Christianity are, in fact, Christian values. So we should, I think, in addition to making a case for the reasonableness of Christianity, champion the, the change, the transformation that has occurred because of the coming of Christ. If the church is going to continue being the living body of Christ, transforming the world, we're going to have to look to see that we are ourselves first being transformed. Some of you may have been around long enough to remember a gentleman named James Ryle who came to our church some, some years ago. James Ryle. One of the things he said, I'm going, to, I'm, going to do, I'm going to do what he said. Look at your neighbor, whoever's sitting closest to you, Say to him, God loves you too much. Say it out loud. Say, God loves you too much to leave you like you are. (laughs) Yeah. 
God's looking to change people. He's looking to change the world. So, no longer can we just tell them the reasonableness of Christianity. And, and no longer should we tell them a better way, but we have to show them a better way. We have to strive to be the Christians that we should be, to be the followers of Christ, the little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ, followers. To be that, to follow the peculiar example of Christ, the willingness to sacrifice included. Because what is being offered here with the gospel is hope itself in the next life and in this one. So, Father, I pray that you will build us up as a body, build us up as individuals, Father, to be better representatives of you, better imitators of your Son. So that when we have a message to present to the world, they will also have a model to look at and it will carry more weight that we can recapture some of the passion that we had when we each first came to you and first experienced your, your saving grace. Help us, Father, to experience that now in our daily lives and help that to give life to our words and to our deeds so that we may indeed be the church. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.